and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Well, that's the second time I've seen it. It's even better the second time. Um, I find it intensely moving watching that film um, and also inspirational. Sue, I feel um, that it's, uh, as I said, I personally find it moving and inspirational and I remember a lot. Um, I was a teenager at the beginning of the women's lib movement at school, um, so it takes me right back. But I also, I want to know what attracted you and Catherine to making this film? Why did you do it? Um, when I started first making films, um, my first film was actually called Thanks Girls and Goodbye and it was about um, the women who were part of the, the Women's Land Army during the Second World War. So these were the women who kept you know, the food effort uh, and the farms going when the boys were overseas in the Second World War. And at the time I had gone with my friend Sue Hardesty. We were both girls from the country and we didn't know this story. It was just... We'd grown up, you know, with strong women around, but we'd never heard about these women. And we thought, well, we'd like to know a bit more about what happened here. We went to the Australian War Memorial and we said, can we look at the collection on the Australian Women's Land Army? And I, this is not an exaggeration. The, the fellow we talked to went out the back, about five minutes later returned and literally gave us a shoebox. That was it. It actually was a shoebox, which was the entire collection of anything they knew about what these women had done during the war effort. And we started a process then and there thinking, well, we really want to make a film about this, which was five years, not dissimilar to what Catherine did here, actually, of collecting stories, interviewing hundreds of women, recording 91 interviews, getting film footage, all of that, in order to tell this story. That began and opened my eyes to just how many gaps there are in our history, in our um, collective national story that are women's stories. And Catherine and I, funnily enough, fast forward, I made that film in, um, you know, it came out in 87. So, you know, we're kind of fast forwarding like 40 years later. No, it's not, 30 years later. And Catherine and I were on um, a panel. Catherine had just come back from America where she had seen that there was a film called She's Beautiful When She's Angry that was being made about the um, women's movement in the US. And Catherine, as a young woman in her 20s, thought, wow, that looks really amazing. And she got in touch with them and said, can I help out? And went over there and spent about three years in the edit room on archival. 
And she, like me, fell in love with what happens when you're just scouring through um, archival footage and photographs and you start to fill in that visual and that story gap. She came back to Australia. We ended up on this panel together talking about feminism and women and missing stories um, on, you know, on the screen. And at the end of it, Catherine turned to me and just sort of said, well, I don't understand why nobody's documented uh, what happened here in Australia. It wasn't for want of trying. There had been women over the years um, who had tried to get this story told. But five years ago, uh, feminism was a dirty word. <laughs> It really was. No one was interested in funding anything like that for years. And, um, you know, various projects got knocked back. But I sort of said to Catherine, well, how about you do it? <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I'll support you, you know, mentor you and help introduce you to other filmmakers. And, yeah, you do it. And that's um, that began Catherine's, um, you know, journey really for um, – Likewise, and she's now, of course, got the bug and wanting to tell so many other stories uh, that fill those gaps. There are so many missing stories about women in this um, in this nation. In fact, throughout history, women are, are conspicuous by their absence, if you look at history. Um, in fact, it's not a coincidence. I suspect that it's called his story. Um what uh, you mentioned there, which I find really interesting, is that five years ago feminism was a dirty word and I know from the publishing industry if you tried to get a book published that was about feminism or had feminism in the title, um, forget it, no one would do it, they wouldn't sell, no one was buying them. Suddenly now feminism is hot, like, you know, anything with feminism involved in it is going off like a rocket. What changed? Me too. <laughs> Me too, I think, changed everything. And watching the film again now too, it struck me, it was the beginning of the movement to establish women's refuges that actually was not that dissimilar to what happened with Me Too now. But back then, as for the first time, uh, women, we found a voice to start talking about violence and violence against women and all of a sudden the floodgates open. And the reality we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again, of course, Me Too did this, but, you know, as we pointed out later, on a totally different platform, on social media, give women the opportunity to start talking about violence and sexual violence and everyone's got a story, either about themselves or people, you know, women close to them. One in five women have been sexually assaulted. One in three have been sexually harassed. We all know about this and we don't talk about it. But Me Too changed that. And I think, um, of course, everything that followed Me Too right through to the, you know, the present day uh, you know, discussion that's uh, opened up around you know, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and so on is all part of that. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we need to share those experiences and talk about um, violence in a real way because that's how we get change, not being silent. What struck me watching the film, what was actually really infuriating actually watching the film, was how consistently those smart, determined, uh, thoughtful um, women of great courage and integrity were trivialised, mocked, um, reduced really to a kind of joke and that uh, is still attempted but it doesn't have the same resonance. Back then I think that that 
reducing of women to um, the trivial, the these how ridiculous all these silly women shrieking about things. It did in the end almost work, not completely, but we went into a big hiatus in um, women's rights from about the beginning of the 80s on until relatively recently, probably about five years ago. Um, I know I lived every painful bloody minute of it. Um, But it seems like that attempt to trivialise, to mock and to um, uh, scorn women is not as powerful now as it was then. It's probably just a bit more subtle now. (laughs) I think it still goes on. We only have to look at uh, parliamentary leaders to see um, the many and varied ways it still goes on. But you're right. There there is something that's profoundly shifted now and that is uh, we're being listened to in a way that possibly we haven't. But if nothing else, this film shows the cyclical nature of this and the fact that we've got to keep over and over and over again um, finding voice and not taking for granted the things that, um, you know, we've fought so hard to um, to achieve, you know, for women. Um, I think the other factor is the fact that those women were so young, you know, they were in their 20s and, you know, driving this profound social change and political movement. And that's the thing that gives me hope as well. I just love – and we made this film for younger women. You know, it, this is the whole point is that, it, you know, as um, Martha Ansara, you know, so eloquently puts it, a small group of women banding together can do anything. And that's, you know, the key message that I guess that we really wanted to convey. And even if you feel you're not being heard with um, enough political conviction, you know, cleverness, intelligence and cut through, you will be heard. And I think too what comes across in that is don't forget your history because um, the fact is, as as you've pointed out before, um, so many young women have no idea how oppressed their own mothers and grandmothers were how extraordinarily restricted those women's lives were when they first started to, um, you know, make overt what had had previously been covert oppression. And by forgetting our history and forgetting our foremothers, um, we are doomed to kind of repeat the same struggles over and over again. And so it's wonderful seeing women make films which is aimed at younger women to say, look what was done, make sure you build on this. Just a piece of hope. Uh, recently, Austra- uh, Australia Talks, you know, the ABC survey, uh, came out with the most hopeful figures I've heard in a long time. That now 69% of Australian women identify as feminists, call themselves by that name. That's huge. Only 51% of Australia's population in total call themselves feminists, which means men are fucking it up, frankly. Um, But the really hopeful thing, particularly to your point of intergenerational stuff, 81% of young women identify as feminists now. So that, that is real, real cause for hope. In fact, that was one of the things that inspired Catherine to make um, the film because a friend of hers questioned Catherine, and again, this is going five years ago, why she called herself a feminist. And she said, you know, but, you know, I'm not a feminist. I mean, I want to have children. I like men. And it's kind of like, well, of course we want to have children like men. That's, you know, feminists, of course Many want those things. Elizabeth Reid answered exactly that question. Exactly. But for young women today to think, well, feminism somehow equates with the fact that you, 
you know, can't do those things. Uh, that was another reason Catherine really wanted to make um, a film for, for her generation, her peers. And congratulations to her and to you and for, for doing so. Um, also, I think one of the things that that film really showed was how perhaps people felt women's liberation because it was so mocked and joked about and all that kind of thing had failed. But actually that film shows what extraordinary changes came in in a very short time under Whitlam and that in fact they were so pervasive, as is pointed out, that even the Conservative government when they came in didn't dare to undo it. Absolutely. Uh, And it does go to show with political will how quickly the reforms can actually follow through. Uh, One of the things that happened when we finished the film, one of the first things we did, and this is in the middle of the COVID lockdown, we released this film actually at a time when, uh, well, we decided to release it at a time when every cinema was closed around the country and we were just doing everything on Zoom. Um, And we screened the film for the women in the film. Many of those women hadn't seen each other for 45 years or more. And some of them were all on the opposite ends of that spectrum of the reformist agenda as opposed to the revolutionary or radical agenda. Um, And I know what that was like because I was politicised in the late 70s at uni and, you know, as a radical feminist, we wanted nothing to do with those well women, you know, the women's electoral lobby. They, you know, they were conservative, they were straight, they were playing with the enemy in a sense because they were working within the system. The thing that came out of this film was this extraordinary discussion and there was probably about 20 women online and it was the most brilliant thing to watch where they all said, oh, we get it now. Have you know an incredible appreciation of how we were all working at different ends of the spectrum, but actually we needed to be at different ends of the, spe- the spectrum and working in our different ways in order to have created that successful movement. So that that was you know one of the great things that came out of it all. I think was that that appreciation in retrospect. It struck me watching the film actually how respectful, tense yes and determined, but how respectful the conversations were between Aboriginal uh, women and uh, those early uh, women's liberationists, as they would have called themselves at the time. And also they had very different views and I think that the uh, white women learnt a great deal from the Aboriginal women and, of course, we continue to do that today. But um, also between lesbian feminists and straight feminists, that even though there were tensions and there was obviously, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with them very vigorous disagreement, there was still a level of respect for the fact that you're all fighting oppression. Mm. And there were the forums. There were the forums for discussion too, which ranged from the you know the big public forums that you saw, but then also the possibility, you know, through things like conscious raising groups. Has anyone here been a part of a conscious raising group? Yes. <laughs> okay. That was hugely radical, but the point of the film was actually very much to open that up because yes, there was incredible tensions there and there were, you know, it was a flawed movement in that sense. Um, as you know, the irony is that Zelda Deprano was, you know, a migrant woman who really kicked things off in the late 60s, but migrant women weren't really embraced and included in the um, the white you know middle class women's movement as well and it needs to be told by indigenous women as well and the great um, one of the great things that's happened in this country over the last twenty years is we've just seen the rise and rise of indigenous voices on screen and um, there are you know so many indigenous women now that um, you know are making films if not directly about this particular issue but certainly about empowered 
Indigenous women and um, watch out for Leah Purcell's film The Drover's Wife, which is about to um, launch this year. This is part of a whole new wave. We've seen a lot of Indigenous men very quickly, you know, move into the space of filmmaking. Um, the women, are I've worked with many of them over the years, uh, they, are, you know, th their voices are still have yet to be um, heard and they will be heard big time, you know, in coming years. And people think those little things don't matter but they are indicative of so much. Those small acts of rebellion that uh, one of the ladies in the film mentioned. So how do we maintain the rage? You know, we can't all be on the streets all the time. Um, so maintaining the rage is in so many different ways that we can do that. But the most important one is not colluding in the silence. And it's having the conversation with people around us, um, you know, our partners, uh, the men in our lives, our mothers, our children or whatever, you know, just being able to open up um, the conversations about the things we can't talk about. The you know the um, amount of violence towards women, um, the you know system systemic uh, discrimination in all of its various guises, calling it out when we see it, and encouraging those who are in power uh, and in positions of power, whatever sphere we might be working in, stepping up to the plate and getting them to call it out too, and not collude through silence. I think that's how we maintain the rage. And just also, I think. Um we do have to remember that the approval of the Liberal federal government amongst women is very low um, and that is seen as a political problem for that government, hence them putting $1.1 billion into um, mitigating domestic violence, whether they'll actually spend any money because they have a habit of promising and not spending, whether it'll be spent on the right things or not, I don't know. But the very fact that suddenly women's issues are being taken seriously by a government that previously just didn't think about them at all is a tribute to the energy that was in those marches and the fact that women are not at all convinced by this government in a way that men still appear to be. So don't discount those things. They matter. No, it is the great challenge, uh, I think. Uh, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if this uh, auditorium was filled with an equal number of men? And I applaud all the men who did come and sit through the movie too. So good on you for doing that. Um, until we can bring men with us, it won't change to the extent that we need to. We have to bring men with us on this. But men are fearful at the moment. In fact, you know, it'd be interesting to invite one of the men in the room at the moment. It, it, this must be a very difficult time to know what to say, how to say it, how to be supportive. So there's, there is an issue there. Well, the issues belong to all of us, but the consequences hit more heavily on women. And so that makes sense that women are the ones who are going to get active. We stand to benefit most directly from the change. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. And Therefore, we have to be practical about that. I'm going to differ with you, Sue. I do not congratulate the men in the audience who have come. And the reason I do not congratulate you is there is nothing particularly brave about you coming and sitting down in a cinema and watching a film about the other half of the human race. I, I really I really think we have to stop saying to men, oh, thank you so much for paying us any attention. How incredibly brave of you. No. It's just decent and reasonable and you ought to all be doing it. Um, I'm so angry these – see, I'm sorry. I'm furious. I'm 64. I don't give a flying fuck about men's feelings. I really don't. I've been so sick of men's feelings. Um, you know. Bleh. And I think women can change the world and we are changing the world and eventually men will come along because they'll have to. 
If you think that one day men are going to wake up and go, oh, shit, you've been nice enough to us to make us realise we haven't been fair, you're living in cloud cuckoo land, in my view. This is why I love documentaries and ever since I did Thanks Girls and Goodbye, I keep, you know, gravitating to these kind of films because they have a very, very long life and they do have the possibility of saying something meaningful and hopefully changing, changing that awareness by just helping people understand history, but more importantly, power and how power operates you know, in, in this society. And if you can see it and you can understand it, then you can start to grapple with um, yeah, the institutions and uh, how people are left out as a result of that patriarchal power. Let's hope that goes into some of the boys' schools. Um, I'm afraid. Which is counter to your argument before, Jane. <laughs> no, it's not. The more they see it, the better, but I'm yeah. not going to congratulate them for oh, putting okay. it into the boys' schools. Right. I'm not going to say, oh, you lovely boys' school. <laughs> no. Um, but, yes, oh. they should watch it. They should be chained to the goddamn seats to watch it, frankly. Okay. Um, however, enough of me and tragically – Enough of Sue because we have come to the end of our session and there's another film coming in um, after or another uh, audience coming in after us so we do have to get out of here reasonably promptly. Um, could you please thank Sue Maslin for her wonderful and what is always the way with women, dogged, determined, refusing to give up, long-term slog to get our lives and history and achievements up in front of the public gaze. That in itself is a huge achievement. Thank you so much, Sue, and thank you to Catherine as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.